Well, earlier this fall, uh, as some of you know, my family and I moved to a new home, and we absolutely love our new house. Uh, there are so many things to love about it. Uh, one of the things, for instance, is the previous owners built a really cool fence in our backyard, and then they hung a string of outdoor lights on that fence, making it even cooler. Here's a picture, a close-up shot from last winter that was on their, the Zillow site when we were looking at the home that I pulled off of there. When we moved in, I was actually surprised that the lights were still on the fence uh, after we moved in. I thought maybe they forgot them, or maybe, just maybe, they knew something we didn't. You see, these bulbs started to mis mysteriously disappear, uh, dropping to the ground sometimes. I took a shot of the fence this past Tuesday, and you can see there's only one bulb in this shot. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would estimate that well over half of our lights are now gone. Sometimes I find them on the ground, sometimes they're simply missing. Well, it did not take too much detective work to figure out what was happening. That's right. We see you, Mr. Squirrel, and it's no use denying it. I confronted one in our backyard, and that was the squirrel's reaction. It turns out squirrels and other rodents often cause damage to outdoor lights. For many rodents, like mice, they chew through the wires uh, because sometimes those wires actually contain a soy-based coating that they find really tasty. But squirrels take it a step further, and in their quest to hoard as much food as they possibly can, they will often steal the actual bulbs, mistaking them for a nut. Yeah, poor thing, biting into a glass bulb. A little different than a black walnut. But anyways, who can blame them, though? I mean, winter is coming, right? This is survival for them. There are some things that are completely out of control, such as the change of seasons. It's going to get cold whether they like it or not. It's going to probably snow whether they like it or not. There will be a shortage of food. And so they need to prepare. They need to respond appropriately for what is coming. Well, I think that we could take a lesson from Mr. Squirrel here. See, we too are often confronted with circumstances, with even entire seasons of life that seem completely outside of our control. For instance, like squirrels, we can't change the weather, right? If it's going to snow, it's going to snow. We can't do anything about that, but we can be prepared for when the snow comes with things like hats and gloves and snowblowers and shovels. We can't always prevent accidents from happening. Those things are sometimes outside of our control. My sister-in-law, for instance, just a couple weeks ago was driving on the freeway when a truck carrying pallets in front of her lost their load and caused a multi-car accident. She actually got hit by a semi. She's okay. She couldn't do anything about that, though. But what she could do is she could be prepared by having good insurance, which she did. We can't control the economy. We can't usually do anything about our own company's decision to downsize and possibly even cut our job but we can heed the advice of financial advisors and have money tucked away in an emergency fund in the case, in the chance that stuff like that happens. So we would do well to listen to people who specialize in helping us prepare for the future. Well, today is the second Sunday in Advent. It's the season that kicks off the church year, and it literally means coming. What's coming? Christ is coming. 
But as Pat said last week, the odd thing about Advent, in spite of its reputation as a season of preparation for Christmas, is that its emphasis really doesn't fall on the coming of Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem. Rather, Advent has traditionally focused on the future coming of Christ at the end of the age. You see, in a very real way, Advent is the very season that the church exists in all the time. We exist between these two comings, the first and the second coming. So it's more than simply going through an Advent calendar or even lighting candles on the Advent wreath, marking days and weeks leading up to Christmas. Rather, I believe it's about cultivating an Advent heart, positioning ourselves to receive all that Christ has for us as the future even now begins to break into the present. It's not simply a matter of waiting and even rejoicing in what Advent promises, things like hope and peace and joy and love. Rather, it's about learning how to live while we wait. How do we live in light of this future coming? How do we live in light of these promises? And are there people who specialize in helping us prepare for this? Well, there are, and we're going to hear from one of them today. So let's pray. God, we make space this morning for you. We make space in our busy lives. We make space in our minds and hearts to receive everything that you have for us. Holy Spirit, we invite you even now to begin working in our hearts, preparing them to receive the word, preparing them to receive your transformation. And so we pray for, for grace this morning as we um, look to you to form us, to continue forming us into the image of your son, Jesus. We look forward to that and uh, ask for your blessing on the rest of today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, primarily to begin with. And this is what Matthew's gospel says, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, if you were here last week, you will recall that we have decided to immerse ourselves in the church year uh, by following the weekly readings that churches all over the world use week in and week out to tell the story of Jesus and the story of the church. This selection of readings is called the lectionary. Now, one of the things that both excites as well as challenges me about using the lectionary over this coming year is that our biblical diet is prevented 
from being shaped by our pet passages or our personal preferences. The lectionary forces us to feast on Scripture that we might be apt to pass over. But what do we miss out on when we do that? How might God be speaking to us even in those parts of Scripture that are not as easily digestible? Well, no matter which lectionary year it is, the second Sunday in Advent always serves up John the Baptist. You can't get away from it. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, offer a wonderful variety of narratives. There are stories common to all four Gospels, and then there are stories that are unique to just one of them. Just take the birth of Jesus as one example. Luke, Luke's Gospel gives us the shepherds. Matthew's Gospel brings the magi. Mark is strangely silent about the whole birth for some odd reason, while John decides to get all poetic on us, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, that kind of thing. But the first thing they all agree on, the first thing that they have in common together is John the Baptist. In all four Gospels, John is in the same place wearing the same clothes with the same message, repent. For the kingdom of heaven, or in other gospels, the kingdom of God is really synonymous, has come near or is within reach. Prepare the way for the Lord. Doesn't matter which gospel you read, if you want to get to Jesus, you got to go through John. Why is that? Well, John the Baptist, I think, is significant because he is, in a sense, the last in the line of the great prophets. Although he doesn't call himself one, John, in a sense, embodies the entire tradition. He's dressed like Elijah, he sounds like Isaiah, and he's standing in the very water that marks the boundary between the wilderness and the promised land. In this way, John provides a kind of bridge between the prophets of the Old Testament and the ministry of Jesus and the church in the New Testament. However, his message is somewhat unique. See, much of the prophetic tradition is what we might call transactional in its approach. It's an if-then equation. If you do this, then God will do that. Or if you fail to do this, then God will do that. Now, to be sure, John does engage in some of this tradition, especially when speaking to some of the corrupt religious and political leaders of his day. He does offer some of that. But when it comes to the very core of his message, aimed at the average person on the street, it is simply, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. He doesn't say, if you repent, then the kingdom of God will come near. It's simply, repent, for the kingdom has come. John's message about the kingdom isn't a threat, nor is it a reward. John the Baptist I believe, has come to tell us that we are no longer a key variable in the equation. The coming of the kingdom isn't dependent on human faithfulness. It's not about having better genes or better morals or better theology. As John says um, in chapter 3 there, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's the better genes part of the equation. Instead, he says, I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up from for himself children. You see, what is happening in Jesus Christ, what is happening in the coming of the kingdom is entirely God's doing. Just as much as we can't stop the seasons from changing, so we cannot stop 
the kingdom of God from coming. John is simply proclaiming the arrival of a new reality, or we might say a, a, a new opportunity for people. Again, it's not a threat, it's not reward, it's an opportunity. And we can choose to be a part of it or not, but ready or not, here it comes. It's time to repent. It's an invitation to a different, or we might say a better way. Now, we don't use the word repent much these days, especially outside of church circles. Most people think it simply means to be sorry for something you did wrong, or they think of bullhorn guy out on the street corner who's you know, yelling at people, telling them to turn or burn. But that's really a gross misunderstanding of the word. In the Greek, the word literally means to change one's mind or perspective. So in essence, what John is saying is that in light of the fact that the kingdom of God has come near, is within your reach, it's time to rethink how we live so that we can position ourselves to experience as much of the kingdom that God has for us. See, John is a specialist in helping us prepare for the future. He wants to prepare hearts so that we're positioned in the best possible way to receive the kingdom. He wants to prepare hearts and minds to receive those promises of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love. As Pat taught last week, what we will experience in its fullness on the day when Christ appears, we can already begin to experience through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Take peace, for instance. This is the second Sunday in Advent when the, the second candle traditionally represents peace. Peace is a major aspect of the future kingdom. The prophets paint a picture of peace that has captured our imaginations for centuries. For instance, the Old Testament lectionary reading for today is selected from Isaiah chapter 11, and it speaks of this new reality that will come with the appearing of Christ. And many of us are at least familiar, if not with this particular passage, passage with the imagery that it paints. So I want to read uh, verses 6 through 9 of Isaiah 11. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. By the way, this isn't parental advice here. <laughs> the infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a picture of peace, the reconciliation of enemies, the end of violence and conflict. This is the kind of world depicted on many Christmas cards, you know, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. This is the kind of world promised by politicians, hoped for at beauty pageants, but it's also, I believe, a deep God-given desire planted in the hearts of every single one of us. We spend so much money and energy trying to find peace, trying desperately to see this prophetic dream become a reality, and yet we still find ourselves struggling with things like fear and worry and anxiety and stress especially at this time of year, it can be sometimes the hardest. But John the Baptist, a specialist 
and helping us prepare for the kingdom of peace, I believe shows us an often overlooked piece of the puzzle, which it really shouldn't be, but it is. In light of this new reality that has come near, he says, repent or reorient your life around the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Turn toward Jesus, he tells us. Because what is happening in Jesus is God's doing. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, for in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. By making peace through the blood of his cross. See, as Christians, we are accustomed to thinking of the cross in terms of forgiveness of sins. But it's important to understand what this forgiveness results in. Peace. God was making peace through the blood shed on the cross. See, biblical peace is not just the end of conflict. You can have the end of conflict and still be enemies, right? Biblical peace isn't just the end of conflict. It's also the reconciliation of enemies. And that can only be achieved through forgiveness. See, forgiveness is God's way of achieving peace. And forgiveness, as many of us know, is not simply a private, vertical matter between a broken human being and God. Forgiveness has a horizontal dimension as well, as, as we're all probably aware in our lives. This is why in the Lord's Prayer we ask God to forgive us, and then in the very same breath we promise to forgive others. And then in John chapter 20, I love this passage in John's gospel. On the very evening of Jesus' resurrection, he stood among his disciples and said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Wow, what responsibility God has given us. What an opportunity God has given us. See, as we turn toward Jesus, allowing God's breath, the wind of the Holy Spirit, to captivate our hearts, we, we become reoriented to the kingdom of God. And this kingdom I believe, comes in a million different ways as people of faith rest in God's forgiveness and then learn to extend it to others. Forgiveness is God's way of achieving peace. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to align ourselves with this new reality that John the Baptist announced. We are called to dream with the prophet Isaiah that one day history will not be known by the shedding of blood, but by the challenges we've overcome through forgiveness and reconciliation. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. I want to close by introducing a practice that isn't talked about that often. See, we can experience peace through receiving God's forgiveness. We can experience peace through the giving and receiving of forgiveness in our relationships with others. 
Both of these are incredibly important and are practices that I believe help us walk in that repentance oriented around the kingdom. But one of the conflicts we often have is with our circumstances. As I said in the beginning of this talk, there are things that happen in our lives that lay outside of our control. And when these happenings occur, when, when things happen that aren't what we expected or, or what go against what we want or desire for our lives, it creates an inner conflict, right? There's a dis-ease in our hearts and minds, and then reality itself becomes our enemy. Reality itself becomes our enemy. But as I just said, peace isn't just the end of conflict, but the reconciliation of enemies. This conflict has been all too real for me this past month or so as Kat and I were confronted with news that turned our lives upside down. I know it's almost cliche to say this, but I will never forget the day we received a call informing us that Kat has stage 3 breast cancer. Talk about feeling out of control. Talk about circumstances that cause major conflict. Everything in me wants to fight this reality and say it isn't so. And then there are all the what-ifs we play in our minds. What if we could have done something to prevent this? Or what if we could have detected it earlier? What if, you know, what if, what if, what if, and on and on it goes. Well, Advent encourages us to resist denial and face our situation as it really is. Instead of fighting reality, we can practice forgiving reality. I know that comes as somewhat of a shock for maybe people to hear, I mean, we're all well aware of forgiving one another, God forgiving us, but reality? Can you forgive reality? Yeah, you can. See, if we want to experience peace and forgiveness is God's way of achieving peace, then we have to practice forgiving reality. Now, let me be real clear here. This doesn't mean that we approve of this reality. And it doesn't mean that we don't work to change the reality that we find ourselves in. I don't approve of the fact that cat has to battle cancer. And we're doing everything in our power to change this situation so as to come through this circumstance into a place of healing and wholeness. But for our own sanity and for the peace of mind and heart that we need, we have to first forgive the reality that we find ourselves in. That hasn't been easy. It's not a one-and-done kind of thing either. Each and every day we might need to turn toward Jesus, receive afresh that breath, that wind of, of, the, of the Spirit, granting us the grace to forgive again and to forgive again. But you know what? When we, when we push into that, when we rest in that, beautiful things happen. For instance, one day, Kat said that there was a part of her that really want to be healed right away. I mean, you know, people are praying for us, and, and we would love to have the miraculous happen, but there was a part of it that said, I don't want that to happen so soon, so quickly. Because if it were to happen, we might simply just go on with our lives, business as usual, and we might actually miss out on some of the gifts that this season has for us. The shift in priorities, friends and families coming closer together in support and love and prayer. As some of you know, shortly after her diagnosis, we started a prayer group that connects people using the awesome app Marco Polo. But 
Every night at 8 o'clock for just five minutes, and we've been doing this for over a month now, we have a group of people who gather together and we pray. And then people share things that they feel like God is, is, is doing in them and, and words that they have for Kat. And not only have these times of prayer and meditation been healing for us, but people who've been participating in this have been experiencing aspects of their own healing, their own growth. It's been beautiful. And by sharing our story with others, we're able to demonstrate simple and yet powerful ways that the kingdom of God has come near. You see, we could sit around all day complaining, wishing it wasn't so, stressing out about outcomes, missed work, financial stress, and so on, or we could look for the gift of this moment. How can we reconcile with this situation? How can we see this as not just a challenge, but an opportunity? Again, this isn't an easy thing to do, and I think it's actually best that we begin practicing it in circumstances that are a little less challenging than that so that we're better equipped for when a more difficult situation arises. For example, if this coming week, God forbid, you find yourself sick with a miserable cold or a stomach bug, you don't have to approve of that reality, nor should you not work to change it. <laughs> you know, pray for healing, take your medicine, drink plenty of fluids, get sleep. However, you may need to actually practice forgiving reality. What gifts might be hidden in this moment? Turn toward Jesus and hear him say those four words, peace be with you. Feel the breath of God and the wind of the Spirit blowing in your soul, empowering you to experience forgiveness and be able to extend it to this situation. Because forgiveness is God's way of achieving peace. Amen?